Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Thank you for joining us today on this um, medical-ish podcast. Joining me today uh, as co-host is Dr. Ryan Marino, uh, fan favorite. Ryan, uh, thanks for coming back on the show, buddy. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, Every time you come back, your beard is more and more luscious. Uh, How are you? (laughs) It's, it's it's beautiful, man. Um, how are you? Uh, what are you wearing in the ER in terms of masking with that thing? Um, I usually use the, the KN95s, and it just I put it inside of there. It's not a, a good seal, probably, but you're feeling more confident these days. I mean, what when I'm really really concerned, we have other other things I can use. So, how are you feeling in general? Do you feel like you have evaded? covid this long if you've evaded covid this long that you're gonna be pretty much indestructible how do you how do you feel (laughs) you feel like you're just not gonna get it at this point i don't know i mean i want to feel positive about where we are like where where cases are going and all of that um but i remember feeling positive about it a few times before right right before everything gets terrible again so yeah, you're trying not to let that positivity so good. I went, my um, old college roommate came into town and, you know, I hadn't seen him in like uh, since COVID. And um, <clears throat> he was like, let's go out. And I'm like, okay, yeah. So we went out for, for drinks. When we went out, we were like, um, we were on Divis Street here, Divis Darrow in San Francisco. It was kind of raining outside. So our options for outdoor seating were not great. And at one point in the night, there was really only one option we had. To, to get drinks together. And that was to be inside of a bar. So we go into this bar. It's a bar that we used to go to when we were, you know, younger. And it was packed. And I just 
felt the heat of the people in there, like coming off. And there's just people there and you feel their heat, especially when it's like cold and rainy outside and you feel that heat. And I was just like, oh, this is not, I'm not comfortable with this. And, you know, everyone's like shoulder to shoulder getting drinks and uh, no one's wearing a mask, not even the bartenders. I'm the only one wearing a mask. I, I was, it was the least fun beer I've ever had. One beer. We stayed for one beer and I was drinking it being like, oh my God, I'm definitely getting COVID now. And again, I don't want to deal with this again. And then also I just felt, I felt too old, you know, not too old in general, just too old to be in the club. Old, you know what I mean? Um, it was awful, man. Everyone there was like younger and hipper and like maskless. And I just never felt more naked. It felt like a nightmare, like a nightmare when you like show up at school naked and you're like, oh my God, my I don't have my pants. I mean, I didn't study for the test. That's the kind of anxiety I was feeling during this thing. I, I uh, dude, I, I don't think I got it in me anymore, man. I don't know. I'm, I may be done. I may be done with the bars. It is weird. Like, I, I don't know. I can't go anywhere now without checking like where, what the ventilation status is, how crowded it is, how, how close to me people are. Yeah. Um, I feel like it all could have been so different if people just would have gotten vaccinated, but I don't know, even if there was no COVID at all, just being around that many people was such a foreign thing and it was packed and I've never loved packed bars. I've never enjoyed that, but it was like, there was just so many people there. Even if COVID wasn't an issue, I just didn't feel comfortable anymore. I'm like, I need space. I like having some space. I don't like like being shoulder to shoulder to get a drink. I'm like, I just, I'm, I don't think that's, I don't think that's in it for me anymore. Yeah. I, I don't know. I used to be like really extroverted too. And I feel like this whole, the past two years, like now I don't even want to leave my, my couch to do things. People ask if I want to go to the movie theater and it's like, I can wait. I can wait till it's, <laughs> wait till it comes out on TV. It'll be on HBO max soon. I'll just wait. Um, yeah. I'm the same way. We should also talk about David poses. David poses as, as you know, uh, was the author of a, a book called The Weight of Air. It's a really great book about uh, heroin addiction, his journey through recovery. We interviewed him together on this podcast about it and, and talked to him. He, he taught us a lot, uh, taught me a lot about uh, recovery and uh, harm reduction. And unfortunately, he passed recently. Um, and I think it's a really big loss uh, it's a really big loss for, for everyone in the medical community, not to mention the people in the harm reduction community. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it, it's really a, a tremendous loss for everybody. David was a phenomenal writer and author. Um, and we're lucky that he, he shared that with us because like you said, he had a great perspective on kind of addiction on on medical treatment of addiction on harm reduction and kind of all the ins and outs um and unfortunately we we've lost that voice so it's just another reason that that we got to keep keep pushing for for better treatment of people like like david um you, you know I, I one thing that he really opened my eyes to was this sort of doctor's concept of like okay, yeah, we'll get you on something else to get you off of the addiction, but then we eventually have to wean you off of that too. Um, because for guys like, and maybe that works for a lot of people, but for people like him and some, I'm sure a lot of other p- 
people with addiction issues, there is something underlying the the addiction. There is something that started it. In his case, it was pretty significant uh, depression. And he's pretty clear about that. So uh, I think that's probably something that he was um, battling the whole time. And I was always under the impression, hey, we just, all we have to do is get him off of uh, this boop, buprenorphine, which I still have a hard time saying. Go back and listen <laughs> to that episode if you want to hear me struggle through that one. Um, but he was like, no, this is, this is the thing that keeps me healthy. This is the thing that keeps him going. He needed something chronically. It, it, it made me realize that, you know, it, there are going to be people that we have to just accept. We are going to have to treat them with something long-term because there's some underlying problem that we're missing with this, you know, um, in his case, depression. I mean, you, you deal with this all the time. You see it all. You, you actually were the first person to, to really open my eyes to harm reduction. So I appreciate that. Thank you for that. Yeah. One thing in like the, in the addiction space is so many people, once they get into recovery are still scared to, to talk about like being on medicines or, or their own past with drugs and what was really remarkable about David was that he shared all of that. He was so upfront about all of that. And I mean, it really is a problem that if people are nervous to say that they used to use heroin or, or that they take a, a daily medication so that they're not injecting heroin anymore. Um, and I mean, I, I hope his example can still kind of lead, lead people towards a, a better future. I agree. If you haven't read his book yet, I, I really recommend it. Please check out The Weight of Air um, by David Poses. Okay, uh, stay tuned. We have two really great guests coming up. We have Dr. Laura Bucavina and Dr. Alberto Castro-Bigali. Uh, and they're going to talk to us about volunteering as doctors uh, to help the people in Ukraine and uh, what they've been doing. Thanks again to Nadine for help with production. If you guys haven't already, please follow us uh, at the House of Pod at Twitter. Rate and review us on iTunes and stay tuned. Joining us today, we have two very special guests. We have Dr. Laura Bukovina and Dr. Alberto Castro Bigali. Um, first of all, did I say those names correctly? Was, Laura, did I say your name correctly? Yes, yes. Laura Bukovina, you got it. And Alberto, did I say your name correctly? Yep, perfect. Your names are luxurious, very expensive wineries, and I love that. They, they do sound like some sort of restaurant chain. Let's, let's start with some of the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves first? What kind of doctors are you? What, what level of training, et cetera, that you guys have? Let, let's start with uh, you, uh, Dr. Bukovina. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us, first of all. Um, my name is Laura Bukovina, as pronounced correctly. I am a urologic oncology fellow, which means I completed my urologic surgery residency at Case Western and went on to do my fellowship on, in, in surgical oncology and urology, basically, at Fox Chase, which is in Philadelphia. And I will be incoming staff in urologic oncology at Case Western uh, in the summer. And Al Alberto? Yeah, for sure. Well, once again, thank you for having us both. Um, but just going to reiterate, my name is Alberto Castro Vigali, and um, I graduated from medical school recently in 2021. 
in a, I've been doing a research year at, uh, as a research intern slash fellow uh, at Fox Chase Cancer Center, which is how I met Laura. And I will be an incoming intern uh, in urology, uh, excuse me, in Temple um, in urology. Oh, that's fantastic. So you guys both volunteered and have recently just come back. I mean, just come back um, from volunteering at, I believe, the border of Ukraine and Poland. Is that, is that correct? Yes, correct. Before you talk to us about what you saw, can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to go? Um, I can start because I think my story kind of weaves in into Alberta. Um, so I am 100% Ukrainian, which is how my, I'm very strongly tied into this situation. I immigrated to the United States at the age of 11, and I still have family within Western Ukraine um, who are currently still there. Um, when the invasion happened on February 24th, um, obviously, um, it was very, I was very distraught and started thinking of ways that I could help. Um, the most challenging situation for me, being a mother of three, was seeing all those pictures of mothers and children at the border. Um, the pictures that you see where children are freezing, um, where women have no help, um, and essentially the atrocities that are occurring with the women and children there. So despite trying for two days to sort of concentrate and, and trying to think of ways to help, I really couldn't do anything else aside from thinking that I need to be there to help. So I, I work with a non-for-profit in Cleveland called Cleveland Maidan Association. I packed my bags and essentially left for Poland, Ukrainian border thinking it doesn't matter what I do at the border, whether it's medical help, which I can certainly help with, or whether it's assisting setting up tents, whether it's translating, whether it's paperwork, whether it's cleaning, anything I can do to help the situation hands-on is going to provide some sort of comfort to me that I'm actually doing something that I want, that, that I want to help. Um, <clears throat> a couple of days into the situation, I, I started working in the medical facility there, um, along with sort of SSF, which is Doctors Without Borders um, the, from Israel. And it, it was overwhelming as we saw, you know, 20 to 30,000 refugees pass from the Medica border, which is the busiest border crossing between Ukraine and Poland. I needed help. And I knew Alberto has done um, uh, several of these uh, mission trips. He did um, uh, earth, uh, the earthquake response in Ecuador, and he was very proficient in helping. So I contacted Alberto to see if I can help to have him come and help. And within, you know, 12 hours, he was there along my side, helping along. Oh, wow. Uh, Alberto, can you, can you tell us a little bit about that from your perspective? Yes, for sure. And it kind of ties into what Laura said, except for the part that I'm not Ukrainian, right? Uh, I knew <laughs> that in the very, yeah, in the very beginning, uh, when, when kind of things strike, like, for example, a war or a natural disaster, like the ones that I've been to in the past, I know that in the very beginning days, it's very disorganized and there's not a lot of help. It, there's a lot of uh, movement or initiative, but there's not a lot of help on the ground. So the way that I kind of took it upon myself to get involved was I immediately contacted the Red Cross and I contacted the health ministries in Ukraine and said, hey, guys, I'm willing to go and help and do whatever you guys need, whether it's cook, clean, sweep, move people, drive, etc." But I'm willing to go and help, um, especially since I'm a research, I'm, I'm a research intern. I'm, my my schedule is relatively uh, free and, and and fluid. So knowing that Laura went, I kind of 
reached out to her and said, hey, Laura, if you need anything from me while, while you're there and I'm here, I'm happy to help in any way. Also, if you need me to go over there and help you guys out, I'm, I'm more than happy to do that. Um, and I knew that I needed to do something because of the situation is close to home. I mean, I was born in Ecuador, but my family is Italian and my wife's family is Dutch. I mean, she is Dutch. So knowing how close that was to home, I knew that I needed to do something, uh, especially knowing that Laura was in a really busy area. Um, so I offered to, to come and help without hesitation. That's amazing. The, the situation in Ukraine, I think, has, has pretty much dominated the, the media here. And we live in this like 24-hour news cycle. Um, and so people have seen a lot of stuff, but what, what did you guys see? And I, I mean, I don't think we've seen a lot of media coverage on kind of the actual refugee conditions outside of the borders of Ukraine. Um, so I, I would love to hear the, the perspective of what, what you think people need to know. Oh, you know, Ryan, I mean, that's a very good question. A, a lot of times what, what you see is not what you, what's actually happening. So the way that the borders are currently set up are independent of each other. So there's eight crossings in Poland and Ukraine, and they're all independently run. There's not a national system. So there's not a, you know, emergency relief fund, or there's not a WHO or UN that came in and kind of swoop in and run everything. None of that. Um, they're independently run by a bunch of hundreds of NGOs who are each providing independent care. And then the city has a little bit of say in terms of maybe providing some bus stations or maybe providing some police support and ambulance, ambulance support. But the first couple of days, as Alberto said, it's just mayhem. I mean, people are not, there's no setup, there's poor busing, there's no medical care. You have hundreds of thousands of refugees that are crossing across all borders at any time. And there was absolutely nothing. And there, there's pictures that people can see my initial tweet where I showed up on day two of the invasion and I was given a box, a cardboard box, kind of like one of those boxes that you'd get from Amazon of medications and about 3000 people that needed care. So that's how terrible of an infrastructure things initially it was. Now there, there are steps toward improving this. So as you get sort of further away from the initiation, you get people, more NGOs that are coming, more tents that are being set up, more spacing for, to house the refugees. But as it stands right now, Poland is full to capacity from Ukrainian refugees. And we're at just at the beginning of the invasion, right? So we're only about, what, 14, 15 days in and two and a half million refugees. And we still have about potentially five or six million that are anticipated and there's no plan B as far, far as I can see or I'm aware of. And no one's really discussing what are we going to do with people? Where are we going to put all these people? What's going to happen to the kids, right? Because it's only it's women and kids. Um, where are we going to house the biggest? It's called the biggest um, refugee, refugee immigration since World War II. Laura, you mentioned that you have family there still. Do you have... Correct. Do you have family members that are still actively in Ukraine and, and are you hearing from them? Yes, they're in the Western Ukraine. So they're in Lviv, which is where the, the stronghold of Ukraine right now is. And we talk to them on a regular basis. My grandma's still there. She's 85. My cousins who are both uh, 34 are sort of gearing up to fight. And then my other cousins with little kids are still there. Um, granted, they do have family in Poland, 
if the kids need to leave, if it does get terrible. But as it stands right now, we talk to them on a daily basis and they are staying in Western Ukraine. As Ryan mentioned, you know, you we see a lot, but we don't necessarily see the same mm-hmm. things that you may be seeing or uh, that you're hearing from your family. What do you think is still not getting through, if anything? Do you, do you th- what is it that here in, in America, for example, we aren't understanding about what's happening over there right now? I think you are. I think people are starting to understand, but I think people are not understanding that this is this is not confined to Ukraine. There's certainly there's there's currently alliances that are being formed, you know, with Serbia, Syria, Russia, Belarus, and I and I think that NATO and United States are are sort of behind and realizing what the steps Putin is making uh, through Ukraine, not going to end in Ukraine, and what the end goal is. I know none of us are uh, politicians and don't have much of a in-depth understanding about global thermonuclear war. Um, but what do you think is Putin's endgame here? What, what do you think he's trying to get out of this? Reestablishing old USSR borders, I think, is the end goal. I think it- he's, he's, he's at that age, you know, where he he's 70, I think, where he, he sort of wants this to be his legacy. And I think he's under this he's under this view that USSR is the best way to be because that's where he grew up in, right? USSR, lack mm. of democracy. And he mm. wants it to be sort of like the old times. It just when you see like how much the Ukrainians seem to hate him, mm-hmm. I just don't understand how he expects to hold it. I mean, right. what, whatever puppet government he puts in charge, I mean, who wants that job? Because I can't imagine them lasting there long. I, I don't yeah. understand what, I mean, it, it's going to be a endless occupation, essentially. And how, I mean, I mean, again, these are questions that I, I don't even know where to start the answers to. Because it's out of Yeah, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think he was misinformed. Honestly, I think that the, he, he initially probably thought based on his experience with Crimea and how little it took to annex Crimea from Ukraine. He initially thought this was going to be just like that. I think going in and just saying, all right, this belongs to Russia and then the rest of Ukraine would just kind of fall under his thumb. I think he was not expecting the amount of resistance. His, from, you know, from his mouth, Kyiv was supposed to fall over the weekend and now we're into day 15 and Kyiv was still not falling, nor is the rest of Ukraine. So he severely underestimated the resistance that he's going to get. Yeah. In terms of kind of... Putin and the the Russian like propaganda campaign I think a lot of that too has been kind of hard to tease out is there like anything specific that you want to tell us about the history of like Ukraine and Russia and how how dissimilar they are or or what's going on right now in terms of kind of this misinformation war as well yeah, I, I mean, Ryan, I think so. I, the Ukraine and Russia are very similar, more so than dissimilar. I think we have a lot of family members that, that they're in both countries. And you can even tell that based on the beginning of this war, Russia, the Russian people themselves do not support this, right? But there's just so much, there's just so many terrible repercussions for resisting his regime in, in Russia that people are scared. Um, they're scared and they're fed propaganda and the people who are not scared and know the truth end up in jail or beaten or disappear. Um, 
overall, Ukraine since since 1990s when the USSR fell has been leaning towards Europe and towards European Union and towards NATO in terms of their way of living and being connected to the West. Russia, on the other hand, had multiple leaders who kind of have has kept Russia isolated from the West. And actually, they do expect the West to be sort of the, the devil in disguise. So when Ukraine was proposing to be part of NATO and Ukraine was proposing to be part of the European Union, that was a direct threat to Russia um, because they always considered Ukraine to be an extended part of Russia. They never quite really let go of Ukraine as being uh, an independent state, even though in, on paper and everywhere else and everyone else considered it to be an independent state. Russia itself, the Russian government, has always considered to be Ukraine part of Russia. I, I also like that you uh, gave a shout out to the Russian protesters, because when I see yes. videos of people in Russia protesting Putin, I, I, I can't imagine anything more punk rock and, and braver than that. That is um, balls out. I will never have. Uh, and it's very, very cool to see, although, I, you know, you definitely worry about those people. Mm-hmm. Um, Alberto, from from your perspective, you know, you, you, you don't have this same sort of family history with Ukraine. What did you see when you got there? What were the conditions like and how did it compare to other experiences you've had in other parts of the world like Ecuador? Um, <clears throat> for sure. So when I guess I'm going to speak a little bit of my bias, because when when one thinks of Europe, right? Even if it's Eastern Europe, one thinks of this luscious uh, sort of group of countries that are well-formed, that are first world countries, right? One doesn't think of a war going on between those countries, right? And as opposed to, you know, a third world country, like in Ecuador, uh, I'm used to seeing poverty. I'm used to seeing things that are broken and it's just life. And sort of like Laura mentioned, you know, there the misinformation that kind of happened uh, on Putin's side and the way that he kind of got involved with everything and started um, sort of um, invading things and kind of leading to more destruction. What I noticed immediately was uh, the kids' faces, the faces of the people and how distraught they were by the situation because although they have been working for so long, they made it to a certain spot and they felt safe. But the reality still hasn't set in that they still need to create a new life somewhere else, more, more like more, more or less likely, right? Because this is not something that will, you know, let's say the war ends tomorrow. It's not like some of these people can just go back to their homes. A lot of these people's homes are destroyed. A lot of the areas are destroyed. Hospitals are destroyed. So the, you have to face reality. So that's what was really shocking to me. And, and you did mention, I don't have a family connection that ties me to the area, rather for me, it's more of the humanitarian side of the connection to that area. Like when, when we left, uh, I spoke to uh, Laura, Laura's husband and her brother. And even though they said, thank you for coming and helping my people, the way that I responded said, these are my people too now, right? Because it's not just that we're separated by, uh, you know, family ties, but rather we're helping one common, common group of people. Yeah, that's, that's really commendable, Alberto. Let, let me, I feel like we have to at least touch on this subject um, because you, you've kind of grazed it. And I, I feel like we might need to just address it a little. I mean, we've all seen these videos, uh, these compilation videos where 
newscasters and talking heads are shocked that this is happening in Europe. And they'll say really problematic things like, you know, we expect this to happen to people in other parts of the world, like Africa and the Middle East. And we, ex- we don't expect it with, you know. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Basically what they're saying, white people. Is there a bit of a double standard internationally in regards to to this? Is there some people you feel who are paying closer attention in America than to this because the people look like white Americans? Mm-hmm. I would say yes. I mean, this, these are my people, but I would say yes. They're not only because the situation is so terrible because of the amount of kids are involved, right? You, you typically see refugees of, of all types, men, women, children, but now we're seeing only women and children and we're seeing very small children. And I think there's a lot of projection from people because they can relate, you know, these are my small children or when I had small children and these children look like my children and this could be me. You know, there's a woman with a two-year-old child that's laying on the floor and people are shooting around her. It hits deep in people's heart because not only are these my children, but this could also be me. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that's sort of human nature. I mean, it is something that has you know, I'm Middle Eastern and it, it, it you know, wasn't lost on me. I, I really care. And it really bothers me. The videos I see coming out of mm-hmm. Ukraine that that makes it no less impactful. Um, I did note it in my head, though. I was like, oh, this is a, a stronger response. And mm-hmm. I remember us getting in other situations where we've seen brown people mm-hmm. <laughs> and not even they just look a little bit different. Maybe they, they don't look like they dress the same a little. Maybe they dress a little different. You know, um, and, and I did notice that, but I don't, in my mind, I don't feel like that makes it, it's true. We should care about those things as well, but it also doesn't mean we shouldn't be upset about what's happening in Ukraine. I, I also think that there, I also think is that we have a common enemy, right? Like no one really likes Putin. I mean, let's, let's be real. No one really likes Russia has always been portrayed as a bad guy. And no one really likes Putin. So we have a common enemy who's hurting kids that look like us or our kids. So that's why you have this visceral, strong response. It is easier. It is easier in the setting because at least it appears that it's a simpler situation. Now, you could talk to people from the Middle East who would say, you know, the crises there are just as black and white, but we don't see them that way here. So Mm -hmm. I, I definitely get that. The moving on to something a little bit differently. Tell us a little bit about the camp itself. Like when you got there, what 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 were you given? Like what kind of where did you guys where were you guys staying? What were the conditions like for you guys? So we stayed in uh, we stayed in like separate housing, which was about an hour away from the border because there was just very little housing available near the border. So we traveled by car back and forth every day. 
Now, the first day that I was there, there was no warming tents. And then about day three, we started putting up these tents where people can sit inside and wait for, for buses. So the border itself is not where the refugee camp is. The refugee camp is about 15 minutes away by bus. And it's essentially a big mall that they converted to a refugee camp. They just put a bunch of cots and blankets and et cetera. So while people are waiting for this bus, it's extremely cold. And sometimes in the beginning, there were only two buses that were circulating. So people have to wait for three to four hours after they cross the border, especially at night, it gets terribly cold, you know, negative seven, negative six degrees Celsius. Mm. So we would set up these tents and kind of put people in tents so they can warm up. And then we set up a, a medical tent close by. And then people started coming in, these independent NGOs, where they would set up kitchens. They would set up chai stations, like chai, like chai latte stations. Um, they would set up a clothing station. They would set up a kid station. Actually, one of the one of the, like, the best ideas I've ever seen, and Alberta can talk about it because they became really close friends, was their baby wagon, a baby, a baby van. Alberta, do you want to talk about this uh, baby van? Yeah, for sure. So the actual name is Baby Milk Truck. Yeah. Uh, the group of people uh, is, uh, uh, it's two people, uh, they're a couple, and they're from Spain. Their idea was basically, you know, like Laura mentioned earlier, uh, the reason this has um, gathered so much attention was because a lot of the people kind of look the same to the people in Europe right? They're all mm -hmm. the same people, right? So the Spaniards also saw this as well and said, okay, one way that I can help is I'm going to take my RV truck, convert it into a mom and kid van and drive over to Ukraine border and help out. So what they did is basically they have a, um, an RV van with, uh, with a hot shower, hot rooms, a uh, place to change and a place for, the, uh, for kids to just come in there and kind of be, be away from the cold and harsh environment that is outside. Um, and they brought food, they brought uh, uh, baby milk, baby formula, wipes, you name it, they brought it in. They're starting this movement from uh, mainly in Spain, kind of gathering a lot of their friends to rent these same types of, of RVs to drive them over to Ukraine instead of like kind of like a kindergarten kin uh, child daycare so that while parents are kind of stressed out, they can go rest for a little bit, go eat, go do their thing while kids stay in the vans and play. Wow. That's amazing. Um, do you, before we move on for that, I mean, at the end, we're definitely going to talk about uh, ways to help and, and uh, whatever plugs you guys have. But before we move on from that, is there, do you know the name of that or how people could contribute to that uh, online if they wanted to, to help out the mommy or the, the mom milk, the baby milk truck? Sorry. What was it? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, so it's called baby milk truck. Uh, you can find it on Instagram and you can uh, donate via that. Um, they have their links up as well. Um, they have their email there where you can email them as questions and they post things daily about the, the situation. They post things about um, their next plans and stuff. And it's all very new. It started within the past week because they saw a need and came really without a plan. Just kind of the same idea that Laura and I had is coming and help and slowly it's developing into this uh, sort of like NGO almost uh, for, for kids and, and moms. So you can just go to Instagram and look baby milk truck and you can find it there. And we'll, we'll, we'll get some links for you guys as, as well. Yes. I'd like to talk more about what, what you guys think needs to be done or can uh -huh. be done, but going back to the kind of media bias and framing for a quick second, 
I appreciated, Laura, how you said that it, it's not the Russians. That this is specifically Vladimir Putin doing this. Um, and I mean, it, it's hard not to remember kind of what happened to, to Chechnya mm-hmm. a, a few years ago. But what is kind of the perception in, in Ukraine and, and in the, the surrounding areas for kind of the, the media coverage in the West? And I mean, especially given the fact that in, in the United States, there are so many people giving kind of pro-Putin talking mm-hmm. points. Um, h- how are people reacting? How do they feel that the world is, is supporting them or not? I think overall, Ukrainians feel very well supported. Obviously, there are more political issues in terms of, so supported in terms of humanitarian support. When you're talking about political support, obviously, there are huge issues from Europe and NATO, which is a separate issue. Overall, on the people side of things, from what I have seen and have spoken to people, I think the world itself on, on the humanitarian side of things is supporting Ukraine exceedingly well. Um, When you talk media, Ryan, I think there's, obviously we know that there's huge propaganda in Russia. I mean, right now people, our friends who are in Russia, we actually have family who are in Russia. We are not able to send them videos or messages um, because everything is shut down. You have no access to social media. You have very little access to internet resources, period. So they have shut down completely anything around them. So people are not able to see anything except what is fed to them, which is propaganda. And then there is, we can't be blind to the fact that the West is also feeding propaganda a little bit, right? So we're all pro-Ukrainian. We, we think Zelensky's great and he's amazing. He's a great leader. But we also are underreporting a lot of things to boost morale. And it's a positive propaganda, right? So we're underreporting things in terms of losses on the Ukrainian side because we want to make it seem like Ukraine is doing really well, which it is doing incredibly well. But we have to be cognizant that there's propaganda on both sides. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that you say that because um, I just saw a video being passed around online and it was like this a video supposedly of a like a soldier, a Russian soldier with a grenade launcher mm-hmm. that they they said that this guy froze to death because the Russian army kept him chained there to a pole so he wouldn't leave or run away from his position. And obviously it's something that makes the Russian army look ridiculous and bad mm-hmm. in so many different ways, but it also does not seem real to me. And it's that kind of thing that feeds into Putin saying, look at the lies they're telling over there. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't think that thing helps us or helps Ukraine or helps the, you know, West and, or the, the allies of Ukraine in the long run, those kind, that kind of propaganda, um, which, you know, I don't know if, I don't think that's state run or anything. I think that's just an independent thing, but yeah. it is important to, to be watching out for, for that on both sides. It's unverified now with the with the telegram, which is what is being used in this war. It's sort of like WhatsApp, but it's encrypted um, with the telegram and the WhatsApp and the immediate immediate social media access. People are able to post things that are unverified and then it, it becomes viral and out of control and people are unable to verify if that's correct or not. I mean, the video could be from 2002. You know, nobody would know that. Right. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I just want to add one thing to this kind of media mayhem, I guess let's say, like for example, yesterday or before yesterday, uh, there was a video circulating about Paris being uh, attacked. 
um, it was a girl kind of showing the Eiffel Tower with, uh, with a bomb landing on there. And it started going all over Twitter and all over Instagram. And like she said, um, the different uh, sort of messaging apps and kind of people started spreading in like, this is reality. But they failed to, to see that that was Paris. And at the bottom of the video, it kind of said, this is what could happen if the world prolongs in NATO and the Western countries don't get involved. But people kind of took that as um, as a, a face value and didn't realize that it was fake. Um, yeah. So that does happen a lot, like Laura said, and and it's sometimes to boost morale or to kind of get a point across. But we do have to be cognizant that, you know, it it do, it does hurt, uh, kind of our point, if if we don't show the reality of things. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um. Let, let me ask you another question. I mean it's hard to not discuss COVID uh, at this, you know, given the state of the world and, and where we're at with COVID, but you're in these crowded camps. You're in close contact with a lot of people. I'm assuming a lot of this is outdoors just because the infrastructure isn't there yet, but is there, was there a concern for COVID? Was there COVID precautions being taken where at this point we were just like, Hey, you know what? We have to triage. And, you know, we, we have, we can't really focus on COVID right now. How was that addressed? Yeah. Uh, you know, we, it was really not a priority, right? I, it is in the back of our minds. I mean, Laura is fully vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated, but at the same time, the priority were the people coming over and, you know, you don't have sometimes the time to tell everybody, Hey, put a mask on because you have to speak to them. They're, they're stressed out. They're, they're sort of panic. A lot of people are panicking, right? We saw a lot of panic attacks. And adding a mask to that makes it worse. Uh, so it's not really a priority. We also don't tend to, we didn't tend to see many people uh, for longer periods of, for very long periods of time, except for kids, right? We, um, uh, in general, it was just not a priority. It was something we, we didn't really assess. Plus, we're, like you said, we were outside. There was a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, our priority was keeping everybody warm and, right. and treated. Right. Yeah, so I can tell you this, Ukraine, I mentioned this a couple of times because people were asking me online about, you know, because vac- you see these refugee camps and no one's wearing a mask. And the, the problem goes back to the Russian propaganda that was fed into Ukraine um, back during COVID and the vaccination. So vaccinations were heavily um, refused in Ukraine because they were deemed as US, US-based propaganda by, by Russian sort of state media. So a lot of people in Ukraine aren't vaccinated. I think Ukraine probably has the lowest vaccination rates in the whole Europe. It's something like less than 20%. And some of it's not even two doses. So A, they're unvaccinated. Uh, B, uh, you know, we have a COVID crisis to begin with in Europe. And you, you're starting to see, you're starting to see the COVID rates are going up again in Europe. And I, and I assume that's probably a little bit because of all the migration that's happening. But right now would be a terrible time to start enforcing vaccination people who are displaced, people who are having panic attacks, people who already feel that they have no control over their life. And then enforcing vaccination on top of that, it would be terrible timing. And then it would be heavily refused by a lot of people. So it's very important, obviously, it's, but it's going to be, it's, it would be a disaster on the government side if they try to do any of that. I get it. I mean, this is not like the Canadian convoy truckers. This is like people right. with real issues, you know? Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, it really puts things into a different perspective when that happens. Yeah. 
kind of yeah, cake. This is, this is actual tyranny. This is actual tyranny. <laughs> this is what real yes. tyranny is like. <laughs> yeah, this is actual tyranny. Um, what kind of cases were you guys seeing and, and doing over there? Because, I mean, you guys are both yeah. specializing. Uh, you're, 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 yeah. you're specializing right now. You're, you're training in, that special, in these specialty fields. What were you guys doing? Yeah, I mean, we, we saw everything. We saw a lot of people who are not taking their medications. So we saw lots of hypertensive crisis. So people who show up with blood pressure that's exceedingly high that causes them to have strokes and damage to their organs. We saw people with high sugars, and I'm saying sugars in the 500 and 600. So diabetics have no access to insulin um, because either it wasn't available in the pharmacy in Ukraine, or they just didn't have it because they were rushed out of shelters. We saw people who needed dialysis who've been in line for four days and couldn't get it. We saw kids who are hypothermic. We saw kids that had asthma attacks and upper respiratory infections. Um, you know, there were there are all sorts of slew different things. We didn't see wound. We didn't see trauma because it, this is far away from the hostile areas. We saw more of chronic conditions that are poorly managed. Got you. Um, Alberto, uh, do you feel like going through this whole process, it's um, in any way changed or reaffirmed the field that you're going into? Do you feel like uh, this is going to shape you as a doctor going forward? Uh, yeah, for sure. I think it's definitely going to shape me as a, as an individual, which then will impact me as a doctor as well. But whether, but regarding my field, I don't think that it made an impact on my decision of going to urology, um, because I had been made when I was like three years old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, my grandpa was a urologist, so like I kind of like decided that I was like I want to be him pretty much. But um, yeah. I think it it'll impact me on a human, uh, in a human. Uh, way I guess in a you know how to speak to patients how to be with patients in a bedside manner those kinds of things um, and just it, I would find it very hard of anyone going there that is not impacted in one way or another right because not only are you dealing with patients and with certain diseases but you're also dealing with humans and with people and and it's really hard to not empathize because you're you're even even if you don't speak the language you can you can read facial expressions and body language. It's it's such a beautiful thing. And I, me, who comes from another country and have had to learn multiple languages, le reading body languages it, it has become kind of ingrained in me. And and it's really hard not to kind of create this long term kind of bond with with the people that have crossed over. Alberto, uh, I think you're you're already an amazing. Both of you are already amazing uh doctors for doing what you did i mean the the technical aspect of your jobs i don't know how you are at that but you know i can't imagine um it's not it doesn't match your guys's compassion so it's really um it's really heartwarming to see younger doctors you know taking on this challenge and taking on this mantle and when i i ask people online what questions they might have for you guys uh, pretty much universally every question that was sent to me was how can I either help by going there or how can I help from here? So what, what can we do at this point? Where, where can we send people? I, that's a question I've been getting too. I think people are, the people are very apprehensive about going overseas and just helping. And I, and I always try to reassure people is that even if you don't go and, and treat people medically, 
which if you have medical specialization, you will, they will find a spot for you to treat people just because of the sheer numbers. But even if you go there and you go to the campsite and say, I'm a volunteer and I want to volunteer, trust me, they will find an amazing job for you to help. And you would, you would feel much better. Some people feel much better getting a hands-on experience and doing something to help physically. If you, if you don't feel comfortable and you don't want to do anything physically to help, you can also try to do fundraising. You can get medications, you can get supplies. There's tons of people who are collecting supplies. Any, any Ukrainian church around you or any kind of Ukrainian organization is going to, is going to be very happy taking whatever supplies for, for women and children you collect. Medications of all sorts. There's lists posted all over the internet, on Twitter, on all kinds of social media that you can obtain from pharmacy or if you have any contacts within the hospitals. So there's tons of things you, you can do outside from visiting Poland and helping hands-on. For sure. Um, I, sorry, go sorry, on. go ahead. No, please. I just wanted to add one thing about right before what Laura said, we were talking about something that was impactful and something that I, at least I didn't really think about it when I was going there is because of my training in the U.S. is that we, we trained and you kind of touched on this a little bit is that we trained in a certain way in sort of like the, let's, let's call it the American way in a U.S. kind of format, right? Like for example, when, when Laura saw, said we saw sugars of the 600 and that are really high, when you extrapolate that into sort of European or international ways, those numbers go down to the single or double digits. So like 11, 12, and you have to know the calculation of going from the US standard, right? Which is basically like 60 to whatever 700 number we saw, divide that by 18 and get the international number. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, you have to also be able to read the medication that you're getting because we're not just getting a, a medication from the US or that's in English or in a language that we speak. Sometimes it's in German, sometimes in French or Spanish, in, uh, in, uh, from Sweden, from Finland, etc. So you have to kind of become very adept uh, and, and versatile in, in your translational uh, kind, of, kind of work to, to, treat, to treat these patients as well. Yeah. I mean, someone like you, how many languages do you speak, Alberto? Uh, so I fully speak, uh, I'm fluent in English and Spanish, and then Italian uh, for my family is basically what I speak uh, there. Um, I kinda oh. Read, oh, only three little... languages? Only three, Alberto? Mm. <laughs> Just for shame. But they, they, they weren't too helpful, I will say that. No, I, I'm sure you're just the fact that you know three different languages probably made it a lot easier for you to pick up the words you needed, uh, you know, for a fourth and to decipher medicine. You probably were ahead of the game there. Um, what, what about you, Laura? Was it uh, being back there? I'm assuming that you, what, how many languages do you speak, Laura? I speak Russian, Ukrainian and English. Or as someone and someone from UK told me I don't speak English. I speak American. <laughs> <laughs> say next time they say that, say thank you. Um, thank you. <laughs> but how different is Russian and Ukrainian in terms of language? Uh, they're different. I think there are similarities. It's, it's Polish and Ukrainian is similar, and and Russian and Ukrainian is similar. But a lot of Russians don't understand Ukrainian, but a lot of Ukrainians understand Russian just because we're so used to the Russian media. Right. Right. Well, um, 
there's you mentioned that people can go to you know pretty much any Ukrainian church. You've also online uh, talked about Umana dot uh, mm-hmm. org. What is Umana? It's a Ukrainian Medical Association of North America. So they deal a lot in helping people gather supplies. Um, if any doctors or nurses want to volunteer, they can also help you get arranged opportunities through Umana. And then they're found you can also donate to the hospital to facilities such as Medwish Foundation, which gathers medical supplies for recycling and then sends them off to Ukraine. And there's there's also one of my favorite charities is called Revive Soldier, which um, has been very proactive during this crisis. And there's also a GoFundMe page that we set up for medications and humanitarian support for the refugees. That's that's awesome. Um, you guys. I am so impressed with what you've done and I'm uh, so uh, proud, you know, that our medical trainees here are going abroad to help in situations like this. Um, I I can't thank you enough for, for doing that. Um, And uh, we really appreciate it. I know our listeners really do. And we also really appreciate you guys taking the time to come talk to us. You guys must be exhausted and beat and um, we really appreciate it. You guys are much more coherent than I could be with all the time changes and everything. So I, I really do appreciate that. Um, let's let people know where they can find you online. Uh, let's start with you, Laura. Where, where, where do you want to plug? Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Laura Bukavina MD. It's probably my primary social media. B-U-K-A-V-I-N-A. And Alberto, what about yourself? Also Twitter as well, and it's Alberto Castro, MD. Um, and Ryan, uh, people who listen to the show are probably already following you, but um, where, where can they if they want to, to find more of the Ryan? I am also primarily on Twitter at Ryan Marino. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having yeah. us. Yes, thank you so much for having us. And- sort of let us letting us tell our experience and our stories and how to help as well. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.